Lesson 11 for September 2 through to 8. Freedom in Christ. Sabbath afternoon, September 2. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you as sinners today and we confess our need of you. But we thank you so much for what Jesus has done. We thank you that because of him, we can now have a life of freedom in him. And as we study about that this week, we pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us. Bless us each one in our personal lives, in our family lives and in our churches. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Let's read that again. Galatians 5 verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 4, Paul briefly referred to the importance of protecting the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. But what does Paul mean when he speaks about freedom, which he does so often? What does this freedom include? How far does this freedom go? Does it have any limits? And what connection does freedom in Christ have to the law? Paul addresses these questions by warning the Galatians of two dangers. The first is legalism. Paul's opponents in Galatia were so caught up trying to earn God's favour through their behaviour that they lost sight of the liberating nature of Christ's work in the salvation that they already had in Christ through faith. The second threat is the tendency to abuse the freedom Christ has purchased for us by lapsing into licentiousness. Those who hold this view mistakenly assume that freedom is antithetical to the law. In actuality, both legalism and licentiousness are opposed to freedom because they equally keep their adherence in a form of slavery. Paul's appeal to the Galatians, however, is to stand firm in the true freedom that is their rightful possession in Christ. Sunday, September 3 Christ has set us free. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1 reads, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Like the rallying command of a military leader to his wavering troops, Paul charges the Galatians not to surrender their freedom in Christ. The forcefulness and intensity of Paul's tone cause his words nearly to leap off the page into action. In fact, this seems to be exactly what Paul intends. Although this verse is connected thematically to what precedes and what follows, its abruptness and lack of syntactical connections in Greek suggest that Paul wants this verse to stand out like a gigantic billboard. Freedom in Christ sums up Paul's entire argument, and the Galatians are in danger of giving it away. Question. 
Read Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, chapter 2, verse 16, and chapter 3, verse 13. What are some of the metaphors used in these verses, and how do they help us understand what Christ has done for us? First of all, Galatians chapter 1, and verses 3 and 4. Grace to you, and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. And Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even as we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. And Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Paul's words, For freedom Christ has set us free, in the ESV for Galatians 5 verse 1, may suggest that he has another metaphor in mind here. The wording of this phrase is similar to the formula used in the sacred freeing or manumission of slaves. Because slaves had no legal rights, it was supposed that a deity could purchase their freedom and in return the slaves, though really free, would legally belong to the god. Of course, in actual practice, the process was fiction. It was the slave who paid the money into the temple treasury for his or her freedom. Consider, for example, the formula used in one of the nearly 1,000 inscriptions that date from 201 BC to 100 AD at the Temple of Pythian Apollo at Delphi. And this comes from Ben Witherington III, Grace in Galatia, page 240. For freedom, Apollo the Pythian bought from Sosibus of Amphysia a female slave whose name is Nicaea, the purchase, however, Nicaea was committed under Apollo for freedom. End of quote. This formula shares a basic similarity with Paul's terminology, but there is a fundamental difference. In Paul's metaphor, no fiction is involved. We did not provide the purchase price ourselves, as we read in 1 Corinthians 6.20, For you are bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And also in 1 Corinthians 7.23, You were bought at a price, do not become slaves of men. The price was far too high for us. Although we were powerless to save ourselves, Jesus stepped in and did for us what we could not do, at least not without forfeiting our lives. He paid the penalty for our sins, thus freeing us from condemnation. So to finish today, look at your own life. Do you ever think that you could save yourself? What should your answer tell you about how grateful you need to be for what we have been given in Jesus?
Monday, September 4, The Nature of Christian Freedom Paul's command to stand firmly in freedom is not made in isolation. An important statement of fact precedes it. Christ has set us free. So, why should Christians stand firmly in their freedom? Because Christ already has set them free. In other words, our freedom is the result of what Christ already has done for us. This pattern of a statement of fact, followed by an exhortation, is typical of Paul's letters. Uh, For instance, in 1 Corinthians 6.20, For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And 1 Corinthians 10.13 and 14, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But... With the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. For example, Paul makes several indicative statements in Romans chapter 6 about the facts of our condition in Christ, such as, In Romans 6.6, we know that our old self was crucified with him. On the basis of this fact, Paul can then issue the imperative exhortation in Romans 6.12. Therefore, do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies. This is Paul's way of saying essentially, become what you already are in Christ. The ethical life of the gospel does not present us with the burden of trying to do things in order to prove that we are God's children. Rather, we do what we do because we already are his children. Question. From what has Christ freed us? We're going to look at several texts here. First of all, Romans chapter 6 and verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And verse 18, And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And Romans chapter 8 verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And Galatians chapter 4 verse 3, Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. And verse 8, But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. And Galatians 5.1 Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. And Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The use of the word freedom to describe the Christian life is more prominent in Paul's letters than anywhere else in the New Testament. The word freedom and its cognates occur 28 times in Paul's letters, in contrast to only 13 times elsewhere. 
What does Paul mean by freedom? First, it is not a mere abstract concept. It does not refer to political freedom, economic freedom, or the freedom to live any way we might please. On the contrary, it is a freedom that is grounded in our relationship to Jesus Christ. The context suggests that Paul is referring to freedom from the bondage and condemnation of a law-driven Christianity, but our freedom includes much more. It includes freedom from sin, external death, and the devil. Timothy George, writing in Galatians, page 254, says this, Outside of Jesus Christ, human existence is characterized as bondage, bondage to the law, bondage to the evil elements dominating the world, bondage to sin, the flesh, and the devil. God sent his Son into the world to shatter the dominion of these slaveholders. End of quote. And, so to finish today, what things do you feel enslaved to in life? Memorize Galatians 5.1 and ask God to make the freedom you have in Christ a reality in your life. And to help you memorize that today, I'm going to read it three times. Galatians 5 and verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Galatians 5.1 Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. And the last time, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1 Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Tuesday, September 5, The Dangerous Consequences of Legalism And our texts for today are Galatians 5, verses 2 to 12. But just now, the way in which Paul introduces Galatians 5, 2 to 12 indicates the importance of what he is about to say. Look, or listen, or mark my words, as translated in different versions, the ESV, the NRSV, and the NIV, and I, Paul, say to you in the ESV, by his forceful words, he not only calls for his readers' full attention, but he evokes his apostolic authority. He wants them to understand that if the Galatians are going to submit to circumcision to be saved, then the Galatians need to realize the dangerous consequences involved in their decision. Question. Read Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 through to 12. What does Paul warn about in regard to the whole question of circumcision? Galatians 5, beginning at verse 2. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. 
For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. You ran well, who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offence of the cross was ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. The first consequences of trying to earn God's favour by submitting to circumcision is that it obligates the person to keep the entire law. Paul's language in verses 2 and 3 includes an interesting play on words. Christ, he says, will not benefit them. The word used is ophelesi, O-P-H-E-L-E-S-E-I. Rather, they will be obligated... Ophiletes, O-P-H-E-I-L-E-T-E-S, to the law. If a person wants to live according to the law, he or she cannot just pick and choose the precepts to follow. It is all or nothing. Second, the person will be cut off from Christ. A decision to be justified by works involves at the same time a rejection of God's way of justification in Christ. As John R. W. Stott wrote in The Message to Galatians, page 133, you cannot have it both ways. It is impossible to receive Christ, thereby acknowledging that you cannot save yourself, and then receive circumcision, thereby claiming that you can. End of quote. Paul's third objection to circumcision is that it hinders spiritual growth. His analogy is of a runner whose progress toward the finish line has been deliberately sabotaged. In fact, the word translated hindered in Galatians 5.7 was used in military circles to refer to breaking up a road or destroying a bridge or placing obstacles in the way of an enemy to halt his advance, it says in the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, Volume 6, page 978. Verse 7 reads, You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Finally, circumcision removes the offence of the cross. How? The message of circumcision implies that you can save yourself. As such, it is flattering to human pride. The message of the cross, however, is offensive to human pride because we have to acknowledge that we are completely dependent on Christ. Paul is so outraged at these people for their insistence on circumcision that he says he wishes that a knife would slip and they would castrate themselves. These are strong words, but Paul's tone simply reflects how serious he views this message. 
Wednesday, September 6, Liberty, Not Licentiousness. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13 marks an important turning point in the book. Whereas up to this point, Paul has focused entirely on the theological content of his message. Now he turns to the issue of Christian behaviour. How should a person who is not saved by works or law live? Question. What potential misuse of freedom did Paul want to keep the Galatians from committing? Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one and other. Paul was well aware of the potential misunderstanding that accompanied his emphasis on the grace and the freedom that believers have in Christ. He talks about it in Romans 3 verse 8. And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. And Romans chapter 6 verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? The problem, however, was not Paul's gospel, but the human tendency for self-indulgence. The pages of history are littered with the stories of people, cities and nations whose corruption and descent into moral chaos was related directly to their lack of self-control. Who hasn't felt this tendency in his or her own life as well? That's why Paul so clearly calls followers of Jesus to avoid indulging in the flesh. In fact, he wants them to do the opposite, which is, through love, serve one another. As anyone who serves others out of love knows, this is something that can be done only through death to self, death to the flesh. Those who indulge their own flesh are not the ones who tend to serve others. On the contrary. Thus, our freedom in Christ is not merely a freedom from the enslavement to the world, but a call to a new type of service, the responsibility to serve others out of love. It is, as it says in uh, Sam K. Williams' book Galatians, page 145, the opportunity to love the neighbour without hindrance, the possibility of creating human communities based on mutual self-giving rather than the quest for power and status. End of quote. Because of our familiarity with Christianity and the wording of modern translations of Galatians 5.13, it is easy to overlook the startling power these words would have conveyed to the Galatians. First, the Greek language indicates that the love that motivates this type of service is not ordinary human love. That would be impossible, as human love is far too conditional. Paul's use of the definite article, the word the, before the word love in Greek indicates he is referring to the divine love that we receive only through the Spirit as we read in Romans chapter 5 and verse 5. The real surprise, though, lies in the fact that the word translated as serve is the Greek word for to be enslaved, 
Our freedom, then, is not for self-autonomy, but for mutual enslavement to one another based on God's love. And so, to finish the day, be honest, have you ever thought you could use the freedom you have in Christ to indulge in a little bit of sin here and there? What's so bad about that kind of thinking? Thursday, September 7, Fulfilling the Whole Law. Our text for today is Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through to 15. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, Beware, lest you be consumed by one another. Question. How do you reconcile Paul's negative comments about doing the whole law in Galatians 5.3 with his positive statement about fulfilling all the law in Galatians 5.14? To do that, we're going to compare one set of texts with another set. We're going to compare these texts. Romans chapter 10 and verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, the man who does those things shall live by them. And Galatians 3 verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. And verse 12. Yet the law is not of faith but the man who does them shall live by them. And Galatians chapter 5 and verse 3. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. And we're going to compare that with this bracket of texts. And the first is Romans chapter 8 and verse 4. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And Romans chapter 13 and verse 8. Owe no man anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. And Galatians 5.14, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Many have seen the contrast between Paul's negative comments about doing the whole law and his positive assertions about fulfilling the whole law as being paradoxical. They really aren't. The solution lies in the fact that Paul intentionally uses each phrase to make an important distinction between two different ways of defining Christian behaviour in relation to the law. For example, It is significant that when Paul refers positively to Christian observance of the law, he never describes it as doing the law. He reserves that phrase to refer solely to the misguided behaviour of those living under the law who were trying to earn God's approval by doing what the law commands. 
This is not to apply that those who have found salvation in Christ do not obey. Nothing could be further from the truth. Paul says they fulfil the law. He means that true Christian behaviour is about much more than the outward obedience of just doing the law. It fulfils the law. Paul uses the word fulfil because it goes far beyond just doing. This type of obedience is rooted in Jesus, as he said in Matthew 5.17. It is not an abandonment of the law, nor a reduction of the law only to love. It is the way through which the believer could experience the true intent and meaning of the whole law. Question. According to Paul, is the full meaning of the law found? Well, let's have a look at some texts. Leviticus 19.18 You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. And Mark chapter 12 and verse 31. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And Matthew nineteen nineteen, Honour your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbour as yourself. And James 2, verse 8, If you really fulfil the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbour as yourself, you do well. Although it is a quotation from Leviticus, Paul's statement in Galatians ultimately is rooted in Jesus' use of Leviticus 19.18. Jesus, however, was not the only Jewish teacher to refer to Leviticus 19.18 as a summary of the whole law. Rabbi Hillel, who lived about a generation before Jesus, said, What is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbour. That is the whole law. But Jesus' perspective was radically different in Matthew 7.12. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Not only was it more positive, but it also demonstrated that law and love are not incompatible. Without love, the law is empty and cold. Without law, love has no direction. And so to finish the day, which is easier and why? To love others or simply to obey the Ten Commandments? Bring your answer to class. Friday, September 8. Our thought for today is a quote from Manuscript 16, 1890, and it's in the Ellen G. White comments in the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, Volume 6, page 1111. Genuine faith always works by love. When you look to Calvary, it is not to quiet your soul in the non-performance of duty, not to compose yourself to sleep, but to create faith in Jesus, faith that will work purifying the soul from the slime of selfishness. When we lay hold of Christ by faith, our work has just begun. Every man has corrupt and sinful habits that must be overcome by vigorous warfare. 
Every soul is required to fight the fight of faith. If one is a follower of Christ, he cannot be sharp in deal, he cannot be hard-hearted, devoid of sympathy. He cannot be coarse in his speech, he cannot be full of pomposity and self-esteem. He cannot be overbearing, nor can he use harsh words and censure and condemn. The labour of love springs from the work of faith. Bible religion means constant work. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God that worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. We are to be zealous of good works. Be careful to maintain good works. And the true witness says, I know thy works. While it is true that our busy activities will not in themselves ensure salvation, it is also true that faith which unites us to Christ will stir the soul to activity. End of quote. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. One, as a class, go over your answers to the last question from Thursday's study. Which option did most people find easier and why? What important truths does your answer suggest to you about what it means to fulfil the law? Two, Paul says that faith works through love. What does he mean? Three, Examine the idea of seeking to use your freedom in Christ to indulge in sin. Why is that so easy to do? When people think that way, however, what trap are they falling into? Let's have a look at 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of of the devil. And to summarize this week's lesson, freedom is one of Paul's favorite words for defining the gospel. It includes both what Christ has done for us in freeing us from bondage to the world, and also how we are called to live the Christian life. We need to be careful, however, that our liberty does not fall prey either to legalism or licentiousness. Christ did not set us free so that we could serve ourselves, but so that we might give our lives in ministry to our neighbours. Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled Joy in the Morning, Part 2. That evening, the pastor and his wife visited Mary's house, but Mary wasn't home. Her husband, Sammy, was sitting outside the house alone. He told them that he and Mary had fought that afternoon over money. Sammy told the whole story and that they were planning to commit suicide. Sammy shared that while they had attended church for festivals, they had never felt God's presence. He had made statues of saints for the church, but no more were needed, so he had no more work. The pastor and his wife listened intently. Gently but urgently, they encouraged Sammy that suicide was not the way out. They invited Sammy 
to trust God, to give him a chance. Sammy was so distressed that he knew no other solution. He wanted to know what hope the pastor and his wife lived by. They talked together for three hours, showing Sammy God's love from the Bible. Sammy was full of questions about God and his love. The pastor offered to pray for Sammy and Mary, and especially that Sammy would find work. When the couple finally stood to leave, Sammy begged them to return the next day. When the pastor returned the next evening, Mary was there with the children. Sammy was smiling broadly. He could hardly wait to tell the pastor that a contractor had come that morning and asked him to work. Mary was smiling for the first time in weeks. They seemed to be a totally different couple from the two distressed people the pastor had met on Sabbath. The next time the pastor visited, Mary greeted him excitedly. Daniel's fever is gone, and he's coughing less. Within a few days, he was playing and eating like a normal boy. Madesh and the pastor and his wife continued visiting the family. They saw remarkable changes. This family, who had fought constantly and threatened to commit suicide, were now praying and reading the Bible together. When the pastor studied with the couple, they often invited neighbours to listen. Sometimes there were 25 people waiting for the Bible study. Three months later, Mary and Sammy were baptised. They invited their friends to come, and a few months later, six friends were baptised. The couple rejoiced that since the prayers of faithful Seventh-day Adventists, Sammy has never been out of work. Every week, the couple gladly brings 100 rupees in tithe and offerings to thank God for his blessing. Sammy, whose full name is Arakia Sammy, and Mary Arakia are active members of the church in Trichy in India. Have a great Sabbath. This lesson has been read by Dr. Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired. It is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel. Remember, God is always faithful.